Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, reporting conflict responsibly. Radio One's Newsbeat aired an interview with a jihadist who said terrorism was fun and liked the video game Call of Duty. Ofcom says they breached the rules. Were they right? Digital advertising. Analysts say demand for online adverts is booming and next year ad revenue will finally return to growth. Have newspapers finally made digital work? And media freedom in Russia. CNN has announced that it will stop broadcasting in Russia next year because new laws have made it difficult to operate. Should we be worried? And as usual, we're joined by two of the media's best and brightest. Jimmy Leach is a consultant and former head of digital communications for two prime ministers and two foreign secretaries. And Julian Lloyd-Evans is managing director at Dennis Publishing. Media Focus. So first up, BBC Radio 1's Newsbeat has been reprimanded by Ofcom for broadcasting an interview with a jihadist who described terrorism as quite fun and compared it to the video game Call of Duty. The regulator found that the segment was not appropriately scheduled and that Radio 1 failed to challenge sufficiently the views held by the jihadist. The BBC has since accepted this decision. Jimmy, did Ofcom make the right call, or can young people make up their own minds? Uh, Yes and yes. Um, I think Ofcom, by their own rules, made the right call. There are editorial rules on reporting, such as their editorial rules on uh, reporting a suicide, for example. So in those terms, I don't think there's any argument. I don't think BBC have made any argument against the, the ruling. I think the argument is more about how relevant it is. I mean, how many young people find Newsbeat a particularly relevant uh, news source or whether they've got their own way around to find this piece of information. If you look at uh, famously how ISIS um, publicise themselves, it's largely through uh, social media, uh, predominantly YouTube. It's not a particularly sophisticated campaign, but its shock value is such that we're all highly aware of it. It's whether other other avenues to that information have been, been ruled out in the same sort of way. And I don't think, while YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all the rest are upping their efforts to, to, to find this content and remove this content, it is still perfectly simple for a, a, a child or a, a, a younger person who is determined to find it to do so. Um, and that is, that is the thing we've got to worry about because that does desensitise. And it desensitises in far more brutal ways than Call of Duty could ever do. You know, Call of Duty is, is you know, people do identify, but it's clearly a, a made-up world where the one that ISIS are portraying is clearly not a made-up world. And I think that's the danger. Do you not think that Newspeak do have a special reach into young people, given the scale that they've got, given that the BBC's duty as a as a public service broadcaster, that they ought to have challenged them a bit more on this? Or do you, are you, is your point that because it's on YouTube and, you know, anything goes there, that they, they didn't have to challenge him? Uh, I don't think that they should have challenged him. The fact that they didn't, uh, I'll say, in the Ofcom ruling, they have been found to be wanting. Um, and I, I don't think there's any debate about that. I don't, my point is more that it's kind of a so what? It, it's, a, it's an irrelevance to the way information flows into into these audiences, um, YouTube I actually think are, are doing their best to counter it, but the sheer scale of what they're meant, what they're up against makes these things very difficult. If you if people are uploading these things thousands and thousands of times, then it is difficult to marshal that. And there are you know, there's a, a magazine article I think it was in Wired the other week where they show the the, uh, the farms, the moderator farms in the Philippines, where people are just staring at horrific beheading, and uh, well pictures of either beheadings or people's toilet parts. Uh, as people keep uploading and uploading and uploading and just deleting, deleting, deleting. It's a, it's a brutalising experience for them. It's a brutalising experience for anybody who comes into contact with that, with that kind of content. What the Ofcom ruling does is it shuts off one small avenue to it, and I don't think it really make, makes that much difference. 
I mean, Julian, uh, you're an old giffer like me. You must, be, <laughs> you must be able to remember John Craven's news round. And, I do. and one of the things I liked about that is it, it often used to explain the context of the news a bit better than the real news. But one of the things, if you actually look on old clips of news round on YouTube, it really does skirt over some of the more sensitive aspects, clearly mindful that children are watching and listening. Do you think the newsbeat got it right in this case? Do you think that young people should be able to make up their own minds? Or do you think that that should have been handled more sensitively? Well, I think it's right to challenge children in that way because they, they are being influenced. I mean, uh, I mean, we've been influencing children for generations in terms of almost uh, in the way they look at war. I mean, one of the interesting things is comparing it to a kind of a video game and just saying how it was fun. And uh, funny enough, I mean, uh, the last couple of sort of months, I've been reading a lot on the First World War and talking about how people went to war thinking that it was going to be fun and uh, pals battalions and the way we would look at it. And I think we've been doing that for a long period of time. And I think children are you know, heavily influenced in terms of what they think about war, whether it's fun or whether it's uh, heroic. And uh, you can see that a lot in the media over the last couple of weeks about almost how we've portrayed the, the, the First and Second World War. So I think it's right that the Newsbeat editorial staff did challenge their audience what they didn't do right was actually give it context because this person was trivialising what he was doing. You know, he's since died. It's a, it's a tragedy uh, it, what, what's happened. But, uh, so they're right probably to put the content in there, but there was an excellent opportunity to give context to the fact that, you know, war is terrible. You know, this person is trivialising uh, what it means to what he's doing, uh, what it means to him, what it means to his family. So I think that's where they got it wrong. They had a, an excellent opportunity to actually give some context to their audience. So I think that's what uh, Newsround used to do. It used to give context. So not to patronise its audience because I think this key demographic is, is already being influenced and uh, whether we like it or not, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, young, young adults are going to fight in kind of foreign wars or take uh, differing opinions to the mainstream. So mm. I think uh, children are very good at having empathy and understanding. So I think it's right that they were kind of challenged in that way. But they just got it wrong in terms of context. Do you take Jimmy's wider point, though, that young people of today are exposed much more to brutalising imagery and, uh, and news commentary? They are, but what I worry is that lack of context because it's especially with there's so much information, so much almost like a sort of a, a media out there. It's it's an inability to get context. So you've seen a beheading, uh, you know that ISIS is is bad, but you don't really know the context. But behind that, why has it started? Why are these people radicalised? What is their their mission? So I think it's an important job of media and a lot of the more professional media outlets to actually add context to what's going on because there is a um, you know the influences that are on our young adults at, at the moment is kind of huge but trying to disseminate that and work out what's what I mean what is ISIS it seems to be something that uh, you know even as uh, somebody in media that uh, you know relatively recently that this is the enemy it's not the Taliban it's this is a new sort of generation of that and trying to get context so I think it's both now isn't it <laughs> they're both the enemy yeah but I mean as I said children have a lot of uh, you know understanding and empathy and there were some excellent articles written on this uh, this kind of problem sort of uh, likening it to to the, the problems where the, um, I mean, are we giving our enemies a voice, you know, and how we dealt with the, the problems in Northern Ireland in the 1980s where, mm. you know, we had to have people presenting what Sinn Féin was saying. We used to get actors to yeah. play the, the part of Martin McGuinness or, uh, or other Sinn Féin leaders. Which was seems... ridiculous because they're only saying the same things he was saying, weren't they? Yeah, it, it does seem ridiculous. So part of this, some of this uh, sort of, uh, you know, cry out might be the fact that we've given our enemies a voice, but really it's, it's finding that empathy to this... This particular young man has decided on a certain course of action. Uh, you know, what he said is, is kind of trivial. It's, you know, you know, war, I imagine, is nothing to do with... Uh, it's not like a video game. It's probably not fun. And, uh, mm. you know, he probably died in agony and uh, in a way that 
generations of of our young youngsters have been doing in previous decades and centuries. Jimmy, we, we categorise films appropriate for the audience, depending on how much violence there is. Are we saying that we ought to kind of categorise news? And there's also a pragmatic point here, which is, as you said, young people can just go on Twitter and YouTube and find the stuff that they're, we don't want them to see in, in seconds anyway. I do struggle to see the, the centrality of the news beat or the, the news round argument to a, a child's perception of this, of this story. We, we hark back to John Craven. And we're basically what we're harking back to is a day when there were four or five news channels and that was it. And if we wanted to get any kind of information, that was the process. Access to, to other media was grown-up media, grown-up newspapers and so on. If you go on to the internet now, you have access to primary evidence rather than contextualised evidence. And you get nobody to explain these YouTube videos, these pictures of beheadings to you. I think there's a bit that's, that we're struggling with is that very few people really are going to get into contact, into contact with this Newsbeat version of the story. So whether the Newsbeat did that story well or not is, as I say, an irrelevance. Mm. The problem is that people are getting these snippets from various, uh, various different social media and various different online media, and they're just taking what they want. And they will, they will gravitate to the brutal and the, and the colourful and the violent because that is what is visually more exciting. And the problem with that is that we then cannot contextualise it for them because we, in schools and as parents, we don't teach children how to judge the veracity of information, how to contextualise information, how to put information in perspective. There's a whole range of skills about, around information, whereas people of our generation would have that presented to them, a rounded argument presented by an independent body like the BBC, giving us the whole piece. Now they just get it in snippets, and they've got no real set of skills to say, I trust that, I don't trust that, I understand that, I don't understand that. And that's the problem. The problem, I say, the problem with Newsbeat, Ofcom made their judgment quite right to make the judgment. BBC made a mistake. I've admitted they made a mistake, and that's all fine, but it's not especially relevant to a 14-year-old's consumption of media. I mean, Julian, what do you think the solution is? You're a parent, you know, your children could go on Google. How do, you, how do you protect them from seeing what they ought not to see? I think the first point is recognising it as an issue or problem, because probably naively, a lot of people are thinking, well, that's how they do get their information, or I can control it because I can control what they read or what they view or their viewing habits. So probably most parents would be shocked about what their children do uh, get up to and read and, and kind of watch. So I think the first instance is to be uh, consciously incompetent, know that there, there's an issue and, uh, and how to, to, to work it out. I mean, I think as, as a parent, I mean, it's, it was obviously your, do- your job to add uh, context and to talk through issues and not be, I'm personally not afraid to sort of, uh, you know, shut down the news or talk about different things and, uh, uh, and discuss them with my, uh, my two girls. I mean, as an industry, it's probably a commercial opportunity. I mean, talking uh, to, with Jimmy now, it sounds like uh, this, this should be done. This should be, a, you know, we should be, uh, there should be more sort of media organisations or products that add context to, to children. So something I'm going to take away and see if I uh, can build a business out of. But, <laughs> we'll uh, trademark that, Jimmy. Yeah, 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 so you heard it here the, first. The head editor. But um, I think it's true. I think that's one of the problems with uh, modern media is there's so much coverage there's so many sort of uh, images, but a lack of a lack of context. And I do I worry slightly for the generation growing up, where they have uh, amazing resources uh, like no other generation to access information and to, and to get understanding. But I worry they don't have the understanding. I guess one of the points when I was re- researching this was the the points in the fact that we've been trivialising war for a hundred years, and children have grown mm. up with a you know. Uh, uh, a gun as a toy and, uh, you know, looking forward to Christmas and I got my M16 and uh, how I've been sort of, uh, you know, um, had a, you know, 
of trivialised war. And that's mm-hmm. how I've been sort of uh, uh, brought up. So I thought that was the interesting part of particularly about this article where this, uh, um, this, this, this poor man in a lot of ways, he was uh, sort of judging it to be like a video game mm-hmm. and to be fun when uh, that was the... Yeah, the true horror for me, and uh, and in some ways, although it's a, a difficult story to, to 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 get across, it's really important because, uh, you know, that our children are going to be the uh, the warriors of the future and making these decisions. So at least getting it in the debate, I think, was was important. Next up, for only the second time since two thousand and seven, and much to the relief of the industry. Digital advertising revenues at national newspapers are expected to rise next year. In fact, the expected increase is a whopping 20%, prompting suggestions that newspapers may have finally found a sustainable financial model. Julian, is the worst now over for print media, and have you lot finally found a model that works? The good news is that digital revenue is where we want it to be. You know, it's growing and it's growing between sort of 20 and 22% uh, per year. So I think for magazines and newspapers, that's good in the fact that it's what we want it to be and what we thought it would be. I think the key thing is that, uh, well, two things really. I mean, one is the fact that, you know, print revenues are still are still good. You know, it's uh, if you asked uh, someone in the, not in media what they thought was happening to, to the uh, uh, print advertising industry, they'd say it was much further down than it actually is. So I'd, I'd, I'd probably make that point. The real point is profitability, probably. I mean, I think that is incredibly difficult for news because, I mean, I think the newspaper industry has... Uh, it's got a big task, you know, to have quality journalists creating news. Um, uh, it, that's that's you know that, that's really expensive. It's really exp- you know a lot of um, uh, big newspapers like the Mail Online they have over five hundred journalists. You know, to afford that is a is a huge amount of money. The newspaper market is in a is in a low cost CPM market. So to balance those two, to have quality journalism and be able to sort of uh, uh, get a fair rate on the marketplace is, is very difficult. So I don't think the question is really the fact that digital advertising is increasing. Uh, that's a good thing, you know, but that's what we wanted. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's what we expect. I think the key thing is, is profitability. So can we complete the circle in, in a way? So can we produce enough traffic, enough inventory, enough audience for the right revenues going forward. And was it a struggle at first? I mean, did you, how have you, as the, the, the sole representative of the industry here, you know, how have you got to where you are now? Is it trial and error? What's, what's worked and what hasn't? Well, news is particularly difficult, I think, because it's very competitive and it's very expensive to have, you know, great journalists is, a, is an expensive pastime. You know, <laughs> to, 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 so it's, it's probably getting, um, the biggest thing is probably getting that, that cost control correctly. I think in some ways it, journalism has improved. It's become a bit more kind of performance orientated. Uh, people know the size of their own audiences. Uh, I think some some editors have actually written more. We've experienced that at Dennis Publishing. So we found that uh, you know before some of our senior editors might wouldn't write as much as they do now. So we, it's sweating your journalists uh, a bit harder. So I think that's cracking been, the whip. Yeah, but it's actually made for a lot of time better, better products and more interesting products because. Um, people have gone back to, the, to, to, to that art. So I think the key thing is profitability. So it's definitely good news. It's news we expect, so it's not something we weren't expecting. We're expecting sort of uh, our digital marketplaces to be growing by 20%. I think it's an opportunity for, for magazines as well, but not necessarily in as expensive markets as, as news. Um, the specialist marketplaces are all doing really well. Cars, technology, finance, they're all fantastic uh, digital marketplaces. So it's some, in some ways, it's a little better for, for magazines. Uh, the rise of native content and native solutions again uh, helps both, but it, you know particularly sort of helps magazines in terms of uh, uh, building content and uh, creating kind of uh, uh, kind of new audiences. But the key to me is long-term profitability. I think that's the, that's the key. So I think there'll be uh, 
a few sort of CEOs and uh, yeah, and senior staff. You know, this is good news, but it's what we expected, I guess. Jimmy, I've submitted 200 Google right-to-be-forgotten requests recently trying to bury all mentions of whenever I've said online that print is dead and that it won't <laughs> react to, to digital and uh, it's finished. It turns out that I might have been wrong. It's bottomed me out, I think. I mean, it, it, I'm not saying you're definitely wrong. I mean, it, Jimmy's right. It is, it is a matter of the costs. Whether quality journalism remains sustainable, I think that, that's the problem we've got. If you know, In a week where every newspaper and every magazine seems to be obsessed by Kim Kardashian's arse, then it, we're not in a world where quality is really ruling. High-end journalism still relies on subscription rather than advertising revenues because you need that money. You need that money up front. But we are in danger of in chasing ad revenues, sort of indulging in a sort of BuzzFeed-driven, upworthy-driven race to the trivial, um, which does mean sweating your journalists. It also means getting rid of the expensive journalists and hiring some cheaper, younger ones and, and asking them to write the same story that BuzzFeed wrote two minutes ago and the same story that BuzzFeed, they're upworthy will write in three minutes. And, and there's a the creation of new content doesn't seem to be quite such a driver anymore. The, the idea of having an original idea in, in magazines and newspapers doesn't seem to be pushing that many brands. So you think it's all about clickbait and just driving clicks? It, well, quality journalism remains expensive, and it, many of the, that, that end of the market will rely on subscriptions to keep, that, keep those revenues coming in because uh, at that end of the market, ad, ad revenues aren't going to cover it because it isn't clickbait. And the clickbait model, I don't know, the click, I don't know there are enough details about about the ad market to know if the clickbait model is driving this upturn in revenues, but I suspect there's a large part of it. And that just means we, are, we end up with, with trivial content. I think in the end, that is going to turn people away a little. How can we sustainably finance quality journalism? Uh, that, that, if, if I knew that, <laughs> I would be a far richer mogul than I've ever dreamt possible. It is, it is, it is very, very difficult. And there, there hasn't been a sustainable model of journalism for about 150 years mm. since Beaverbrook entered the market. It has been the rich man, a largely rich man, model of newspapers where they will they want to run newspapers, not because it's going to make them rich. If you want to make a small fortune, take a large fortune and buy a newspaper. Mm. The, the model is they want, to be, they want that entree that it gives them, an influence premium that it allows them to sit and sup with prime ministers and presidents and all that. Um, so there hasn't been a sustainable model for newspapers for quite some time. I don't really know why we think there suddenly is going to be one. I mean, Julie, maybe Felix Dennis is the exception that proves the rule. He he took a, a non-existent fortune and turned it into an absolutely massive one, <laughs> didn't he, in the media industry? Felix always loved, uh, you know, editorial. He loved the product. You know, he would he'd read endless sort of magazines and newspapers. And, uh, you know, it came across great products. You know, um, The Week is our most successful product at Dennis Publishing. And, uh, you know, he saw that from very small origins. You know, um, I think we're nearly getting to a sort of a, a commercial model that, that works. I mean, I, I think um, the work that people like The Telegraph and The Guardian have done in their kind of native solutions, or you know, their creative solutions teams have, have done, they've done really well. They've come up with some, with some fantastic sort of uh, advertising solutions. I think the key is proving influence because it is much cheaper and easier to find an entertainment-based audience. So it's the uh, 36 things a cat's doing or, you know, sort of trivial media. I think uh, proving influence with a desirable group is the key. In some ways, I think we, a lot of digital media is comparing apples and oranges in the mm. same sort of uh, in the same fruit bowl. You know, let's not use that one. But, uh, you know, I think, but, yeah, so the key is proving that, that, that you've got that influential consumer, someone that can actually afford to buy a car, that is making, uh, you know, decisions about their business and ha- having them highly engaged within your brand. 
And, and I think it is about brands in, in, in a lot of ways. It's not just about you've read this article and you could be on any site. It's the fact that you are on the mails or the you know the telegraphs or the week's website and uh, and you know where you are and you, and you trust it as a as a medium to give you kind of context and, and information. So but, to me, it's about influence. It's not necessarily just saying it's a, about coverage. But do you feel threatened commercially as a publisher to know that you know when BMW bring their new car out, of course they want it in your car magazines, but they also want to reach out to YouTube bloggers with six million followers and they consider it almost as important as the traditional media as well. Do you feel that you that you know your readership is is drifting away because of that? No, because I think it's I don't feel threatened because it's about context because you know that only a few thousand or two tens of thousand people actually go on to buy a car. So there is there's there's many different things that you need to do with media. You know, it could be about branding, it could be about actually selling the product or changing people's non mindsets. I think uh, newspapers and magazines have got better at that in the last couple of years. They realise really it's about that influence rather than just having that coverage. I mean, you can get amazing coverage on a ma- on on a number of different sort of uh, you know kind of websites and uh, have a big social media campaign. But really, does it convince somebody not to buy a VW and buy a Volvo? Does it really make them change that buying decision? So I think that's what we've got to get better at: is having those tools, spending more money on insight and research, and especially you can see a lot of even even at Dennis Publishing, we're doing a lot more on insight and pre- and post-campaign research to prove that our media is effective, that we are influencing people to change their buying decisions. Because that's what it's all about, really. Mm. It's about, uh, it's about influencing, uh, influencing decision-makers. That's uh, ultimately what we do. Advertising's not necessarily about coverage. It's about you know, you know, changing people's buying behaviours. So that's what we've got to get back to, that kind of essence. And uh, I recently was at a, a conference called Advertising Week in New York, and no one was talking about influence. No one was talking about sort of uh, purchasing decisions. It's all coverage and, uh, you know, what was new and things like that. So I think that's what we've got to get back down to. Can you change that, uh, that uh, your, your audience's buying decisions and, and how can you prove that? Jimmy, do you think the traditional press has kind of reached the top of its game as, as best it can, given the digital threat and uh, we'll kind of reach an equilibrium now? It's difficult to know. Obviously, it's difficult to know. Difficult to predict. I think one of the, one of the problems with, with um, listening to Julian was talking about the influence of journalism and how it can influence buyers, but it's not necessarily what journalism's for. And I think that's... I used to, when I was working at The Guardian, there's a kind of theological dispute between the editorial and the commercial. And the editorial being all very grand and high-minded and uncovering the, the great truths and speaking, speaking truth unto power and all that malarkey. And the commercial guys who actually wanted it, The Guardian to survive into the next week. And those two don't often work very well together. Um, well, what makes a good news story does not make a, a good branding story. Plane crashes uh, in the Ukraine. You don't want to be advertising your airlines on that page. You don't want to be pushing your content towards bad news. And bad news is still what drives newspapers. So there is still that divide between the two. And, and, and while I appreciate Julian's view of the sunny uplands, I'm not quite sure that we're there yet where that, that, that matching, and I think it probably works better in magazines than it does in newspapers, where that matching mm-hmm. of content to commercial realities is there yet. I'm not sure it is in newspapers. I still think we're reliant on the same models are being propped up. I was trying to give the newspaper guys a favour there, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, what Jimmy's saying is true. In, in magazines, uh, the, the native kind of explosion in, in media has helped magazines because if you're buying a car magazine or if you're buying, you're buying Vogue, you know what you're going to get, um, especially from magazines. I mean, I really appreciate the, the Guardian, Tele- Telegraph uh, creative teams. I think they've done amazing work and uh, I, I really respect them, but they have got a... They have got a harder job because mm. the n- news is different, and the, the reason people are buying it or reading it mm. I- I- is different. So they're there to get information, whereas 
magazines a little bit is that lean back uh, kind of solution. They're in a different uh, purchasing mindset. So next up, should we be worried about press freedom in Russia? American news broadcaster CNN has announced it will stop broadcasting in Russia next year after the government introduced new restrictions on independent journalism. From next year, advertising will be banned on cable and satellite channels, and from 2016, foreign companies will be prevented from owning more than 20% of Russian media outlets. Jimmy, is this all part of Putin's evil master plan, or is this a sensible measure restricting foreign ownership of their press? I think it's a master plan. Um, I think if you look at it in context with the explosion, I don't think it's too strong a word, uh, the investment in uh, Russian media outside of Russia, uh, the the new Sputnik umbrella brand for Russia today and all all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. If they can restrict uh, Western liberal media inside Russia and go on a propaganda war outside of Russia, I think that matches their Cold War ambitions. And I think it, it, as a a strategy, I think it works very well for Putin. I was... um, I saw some tweet from BuzzFeed today saying that Russia today has a bigger budget than the World Service, at which point Incredible. really you don't say. Really. Incredible. It's absolutely astounding. But it, it's, I mean, we, we can't be too superior about the, the Russian propaganda machine, given we've been doing the World Service and, uh, and the French have had their, their, the, same, the same approach to, to national broadcasters putting propaganda stations out in the same sort of way. And, and given the, the, the hardly... Hardly liberal tendencies of, of the of the American media, mm. Fox News and the like, who, and their point of view on these things. I mean, these are not welcoming stations if if you're in Russia or in the Middle East. So, but, um, the the whole idea of this being some, some sort of unfair fight, yes, of course, it's now an unfair fight. But that's the Cold War for you. It jarred slightly when you said that because, of course, you did media at the Foreign Office. Surely, the BBC World Service is a kind of bastion of independent journalism. It's it's, it's not a kind of mouthpiece for the British government. Would, would you agree? Uh, it, the, the editorial control of the Foreign Office and British Government of, World, of the World Service is, is non-existent. You're right; they make their own, their own editorial decisions, but they are they are coming at it from a shared mind, um, from a kind of British worldview. They sat in Bush House, you know, they, they're all broadcasting from Bush House, where they're all sat there, not matter. But they are, yeah, they are sat there and they're sharing a point of view. And the fact that Russia Russians don't share it, or the fact that people in Algeria don't share it, is kind of part of the game, you know, and, and it's, it's fundamentally not a different thing, the World Service to Russia today and Al Jazeera. And remember, 20 years ago, we were all sitting at Al Jazeera saying this is a beheading station, and now it's a respectable organisation, very respectable organisation. And do you think Putin's gone for the jugular because, of course, CNN aren't allowed to take advertising revenue, and that's clearly one of the reasons why they've pulled out, because they are a commercial operation. They, they still want to sell advertising in, in that territory, don't well, they? Well, that's the simplest way of legislating for it, isn't it? Make, make it? Don't actually ban it, just make it commercially viable. Then they can say, well, we didn't, we didn't ban them. They just pulled out. Well, that's not our problem. If they don't want to come in our market, then that's fine. So it's a, it's a simple and quite smart way of, of ruling people out of the market. It, it is, but do you not think that CNN, given that they're trying to be blatantly gamed here in your view, do you not think they have a duty to carry on, given that they are making profits in other territories? Maybe they ought to, for the, for the integrity of their journalism worldwide, they should carry on. Well, they're a business. I mean, it's, it's not for us. To, they're not the conscience of the Western world. It's, it's up to them how they want to run their business. If they can't make it work, then they won't. The same as Google can make it work in China, then they won't. It's not. These organisations are not there for our benefit. They're there for their own benefit. And I think um, the idea that there's some sort of liberal game being played, I think, is, is, is a mistake. It's much more cynical than that. Julian, do you think that uh, CNN are right to look at this purely commercially? I agree with Jimmy, really. It's, it's, um, if they can't make it commercially work, it's, you know, who should we to ask them to uh, spend a fortune to uh, give coverage to the, the, the Russian public? I mean, 
goodness, I, I agree very much with what Jimmy was saying there. I mean, I think you could see this coming. You know, I think it's been uh, happening over a, kind of a, a number of years. Uh, I think they've done it in quite a subtle way um, in terms of actually, you know, legislating for sort of uh, you know commercial revenue. So it means a lot of commercial, you know, uh, commercial outlets won't won't go there or be put off. It'd be interesting to see what happens. I mean, uh, we were talking earlier about the sort of, you know, the rise of uh, kind of social media. So it'd be really, you know, they're trying to control their media. You can see what that is, you know. Um, and I think we'd say a lot of people in R- R- Russia are very sort of, um, uh, are very happy about their media. I mean, that's the only thing that was doing my research. You didn't seem to get a lot of uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, pushback on what they're doing. So it'd be interesting to see whether this is effective strategy for uh, the Russian government or whether they can actually control the media. It's a very interesting sort of concept, really. So uh, they can put controls in, but can they actually control media? So it's uh, in this uh, global marketplace. So it's, um, it'd be fascinating to see how that works out over the next couple of years. I mean, Jimmy, Julian's point there is effectively, yes, uh, CNN might go, but they can't ban Twitter, and then therefore the Russian people will still have access to independent news. Well, we don't know that. I mean, that's uh, the internet governance world is um, going through a bit of a change itself. So, of which um, you are involved. I, I have spoken to some people there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, the internet, yeah. The American, to do it as brief and simplistic as I can, the American Department of Commerce, which used to have ownership, though not control, over the internet governance body, the biggest one of which is ICANN, um, are giving up that control. And now there needs to be a new governance body for the internet, or, or over, oversight of the governance bodies of the internet. Um, the Russians and the Chinese and various other countries would like actually to balkanize the internet so that they run the internet within their own countries. If that happens, and if they do successfully balkanize the internet, then We can't sit here saying, oh, it's all fine, don't worry, because Twitter's going to break through, because it won't. And the challenge to these old old models of uh, of media, such as Sputnik in Russia today and all this sort of thing, is that there won't be a challenge to those things. And VK, which is the the, uh, Facebook equivalent in Russia, which is pretty much Kremlin-owned, will continue. And uh, there will be no dissent on on that platform, because it will be a censored platform. If you remember the early days of the Ukraine crisis, making a switch from VK to Facebook was a political gesture. It was a, I am now facing the West rather than the East of a gesture. And um, that didn't end particularly well for anybody. So it's, um, as I say, that reliance on the free market, the internet, I think may be a little um, optimistic. So what's to be done then? I think we should wail and gnash our teeth. I'm not sure what can be done. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I say we're entering a Cold War. And the last Cold was War, honest. The last Cold War was, um, you know, it, it's a very difficult time. It, it, we've come to expect happy endings. And we've come to expect that sort of um, the end of history model where we end up in a, in a place where we're all actually pretty much in the same place. Mm. And the sort of medievalization of large parts of the Middle East and the Cold Warization of, of the relation between Russia and the rest of the world is coming back. And it's not a happy ending. And I think that's, that's the problem we've got with it. We're sort of sitting there going, yeah, what happens to the princess? And uh, the princess might die. I think that, that might be the problem we've got. Gentlemen, just before we completely close down, how do people follow you on Twitter and so on and, and keep up to date with your activities, Jimmy? Uh, you can find my chunterings at, at Jimmy T. Leach on Twitter. And do you have a blog or a website or anything? I'm too lazy. <laughs> As am I. <laughs> Julian? Luckily, I'm the only Julian Lloyd Evans in the world. Yeah, which, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's Julian underscore Lloyd uh, underscore Evans at Twitter. So. And you can follow me on Twitter at Paul W.R. Blanchard and go to the website mediafocus.org.uk where you can leave your email address and then get a shiny email once a fortnight letting you know when the new podcast is out. Thank you ever so much for listening and thanks to the associate producer, John Greenway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things! <laughs>